Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 387 of the podcast. It is October 5th, 2020. My guest today is Sean Paul Teeling. He joins us from Dublin, Ireland. He's the program director for the Professional Certificate and Graduate Diploma in Lean Healthcare at UCD Health Systems. It's University College Dublin. Sean Paul is also an assistant professor in health systems through the Mater Lean Academy. He was previously lean manager at the university hospital there. Um, now, Sean Paul and I have collaborated a few times. I was invited to give a virtual lecture um, to a class last year through the Mater Lean Academy. I had the opportunity to visit the hospital and the Lean Academy last November, where I led a workshop for a group there on continuous improvement and the, the methods from my book, Measures of Success. So we did the red bead game, and it worked out um, exactly the same there as it does everywhere else. Sean Paul has also invited me to review articles and to contribute an editorial to a special supplement about Lean and Six Sigma in the journal International Journal for Quality in Healthcare. So today in the episode, we talk about the Irish health system. We talk about Sean Paul's background and experience in both practicing lean and teaching lean. And here we also have the unique opportunity to hear from somebody who designed a COVID-19 clinic. And then he ended up being treated in that same clinic. And thankfully, Sean Paul um, has since recovered and has been back to work um, for a while and is doing fine. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you want to find links to the journal and other things that we mentioned here, you can go to leanblog.org slash 387. Sean, Paul, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, Mark, and yourself. I'm doing all right. It's uh, it's great to see you here uh, through the Zoom meeting and, and whether people are listening or, or, or watching this. Um, you know, I'm really excited that we're going to have this conversation, and we'll probably end up talking a little bit more detail about how I had the opportunity. Thank you, Sean Paul, for the invitation. Um, or I think I sort of invited myself, but we had talked about <laughs> me coming to Dublin last year. And so it was great to be able to spend a few days working together. And, and thank you for coming on the podcast. No, it's great. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for the invitation. Thank you. So can you um, let you, um, you know, start off and, and introduce yourself to the audience, you know, your professional background, and, and we'll, we'll get into lean and, and, and talking about that. But um, you know, if you can introduce yourself for the audience, please. Okay. So, um, hi everybody. My name is Sean Paul, and uh, as Mark said, uh, I'm working with Lean at the moment and Six Sigma. I am uh, a nurse by background, and I trained in the '80s, showing my age, uh, in London uh, as a registered nurse. Um, and then uh, I came back to Ireland, but um, at that stage in Ireland, there was very few um, jobs going to be honest with you. We had there was no shortage of nurses back then. Uh, so then I worked for a time in the States, um, came back um, and then trained as a registered um, children's nurse in Ireland and then um, stayed in Ireland after that. So basically, um, my background predominantly is in is obviously nursing um, and healthcare, but I, I spent my entire career probably um, nearly 35 years in um operating theatres, operating departments, as you guys would call them in the States. Um, so I suppose, um, I think that people who work in those type of process-driven environments where everything is very smooth and in, to my mind anyway, and, and everything is very ordered, it has to happen a certain way, which sort of tends to, I have that type of personality anyway that likes organisation, so I suppose lean would appeal to me. Um, so that's my background. Um, and um, I then went into project management, I worked on hospital bills and uh, sort of gradually sort of drifted into lean. It sort of was a serendipity that brought me into lean, I suppose, uh, way back then. So um, so do you remember what those moments of serendipity were of, of being first introduced to lean? It might have been kind of gradual where you decided this is something you really wanted to get more involved in and start teaching. Yeah, I think that, well, basically um, when I was working um as a project manager um, for a, a hospital bill. So I was working um, um, seconded um, to uh, an organization that was working for the Department of Health at the time, and they were building the new Matra Hospital in Dublin, which was um, 65,000 um, square meters of new build, new campus. And um, 
I had our director of nursing at the time who had become our CEO and our director of quality were very interested in um, looking at a way to improve process. Uh, and then uh, the, my manager at the time, Laura, was very interested. She was in, involved in designing the design, overseeing the design and build of the new hospital. And she was a fantastic manager. And between the three of them, they, they really realized that we were building this new hospital and we were basically taking everything we were doing and just transferring it to a new build. Um, and we could see very easily at that stage, because I was involved with, like I had about 50 stakeholder groups of different departments, clinical, non-clinical. And really, we could see that if they continued to do the way the things they were currently doing, I mean, the old campus, like it was an 1860s building and a 1980s building. So there was big discrepancies in quality of the environment. Uh, we could see that um, it wasn't going to work. Uh, and that we had to look at a way to um, change things. So at that stage, um, the, the director of nursing or the CEO, who became CEO had said she had heard of lean. I had heard of lean actually previous to that when I was doing my MBA in the early noughties, but it was more in relation to supply chain. And I didn't really, it didn't really, it was just something I, I did on my course. It didn't really, it, I liked it, but I didn't really engage with it. So now I had, I, we were re-engaging with it then at that stage. It was about um, 20, 20, 2008, I'd say probably. So um that's really what what uh, garnered my interest at that stage uh, and everybody's interest. We, there, there must be a way to improve the process uh, because it's not going to work the way it currently does in the new building. And that really was where I, I started to be yeah, very interested in this idea of improving things before we moved. Now, I have to say I must qualify that with um, we made a mistake, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. And I've said this to everybody since. By the time we became interested in Lean, we had already developed our plans. It was a 284 million project. So you you weren't really going to redesign the hospital at huge cost architecturally and engineering based on your process flow. So actually I'll be hands up. Um, This was my first experience of lean and I I hadn't really trained in lean at this stage myself. We were starting to lean after the fact. So any of my friends who were involved in the build for the new children's hospital in in Ireland, which is the most expensive hospital in the world, believe it or not, (laughs) it's so over budget. I'm I'm saying to everybody now, before you build it, even do your process flow before you get near being built uh, and that that so we 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 did bring lean to the new building um, but definitely not as well as we could have given that uh, we didn't start early enough that's that's my experience i think that's a fairly common experience or i've, I've heard you know people um, from different health systems tell a similar story that sure the ideal time might be at the very beginning where now you can start deciding what goes where within the hospital and look at the higher level flows and, um, you know, kind of put together so that form follows process, if you will. Um, But, you know, I think it was also the situation of better late than never. Oh God, yeah. Yeah. You know, you do the best you can of of realizing, okay, now, you know, here, here are the constraints we have. Let's do what we can process wise to make things uh, work at least better than they would have otherwise or without lean. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'd agree with you. Oh yeah, no, we had to start somewhere and I'm glad we did when we did, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so I'd say don't, don't be too hard on yourself for that, <laughs> you know, <Okay. laughs> how uh, this often goes. So you, pro- you saw from firsthand experience working in operating rooms um, what would you say, you know, from your time working there were the biggest or maybe even still are the biggest opportunities for lean in um, operating theaters or operating rooms, whatever we're going to call it? Yeah, so um, exactly. So uh, I think one thing that uh, always that really alerted me to flow in my career very early on was working in a number of hospitals. We would have our patients coming into our anesthetic rooms and they'd flow very nicely into our theaters. Uh, and then we'd have the next patient in the anesthetic room when one, when one patient was still on the table. But we would get calls in on the intercom from the PACU or the, the recovery room or the post-acute care unit saying, we're full, we can't take any patients. So now you have a patient anesthetized in the anesthetic room and now you have a patient anesthetized on the table, which obviously is, is, is not good for the patient or clinical risk issues um, being under anesthetic long. And you, you now have a, a block a PACU. But that's further downstream because the wards haven't staff free to come and collect those patients. 
So a very early example of using, I suppose, process improvement without ever calling it lean, when I worked in another hospital in Dublin, I was working in um, trauma and uh, neurosurgery at the time uh, with a the team there. Um, what we did was we reversed the process. So what used to happen was the nurses from the ward would come and collect the patients. And we timed how long it would take them to come down, but they'd have other patients and they'd have all these variables. So we did something which I suppose was really, we just basically reversed the flow. We said that the PACU nurses would bring the patients to the, to the wards. Um, and people were saying, well, you can't leave them. But we're saying, but actually we're always overcrowded. It's quicker for us to bring them back and hand them over and come back down. So that journey up and down to the wards was, and units was taking about 20 minutes, where the wait for the nurses to come was sometimes up to 40 minutes. And in the meantime, all the other patients were well cared for. So we basically just flipped it. So uh, just quick process now, pre-spaghetti map and quick series of timings. Um, and we sort of flipped it. So I think we were redesigning the process basically without ever calling it lean, but we were, we were thinking like lean, I suppose. I think a lot of people in healthcare do that. Uh, and have solutions but they just don't think that their process is improving and one thing I always say to people when and I, I always remember you saying Mark never underestimate the power of a small improvement or it's the little thing we do I always say to people when I'm teaching um, if, if you if you feel you've never been involved in process improvement did you do did you put a red tray on your desk for outmail or overdue I said and that is uh, in itself, you've made a process improvement. It seems small, but it has a huge impact. And then I would obviously cite yourself. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that, and but, I'm passing along what I've learned from um, from others about the power in small of small improvements. But when you talk about something that is on your desk or or in your home or you're making tea in your kitchen, um, that's a domain where people are empowered to make a change. And in so many workplaces, unfortunately, um, people have ideas, but they're either uh, taught to not speak up or they're, they're pressured um, into, into somehow thinking that their idea is not meaningful or that it's not their job to improve. And, and I know one thing you and I you know, agree on is that we do need to involve the people who do the work. And, and so I guess you know, my, my follow-up question to you is, um, you know, things that you've seen happen where leaders are helping create that environment, um, whether it's, you know, surgeons kind of at a smaller scale in operating rooms, encouraging everybody to, to speak up and have a say, or more broadly at um, a hospital level. Um, what, what are your thoughts on creating that culture where people can and do uh, speak up? Yeah, so I, I personally, I think in my own experience, this experiential, uh, when we started working with the, the Lean Academy in the hospital and working with the university, um, we did have a bit of that, what David Fillingham College knows, oh, we're not Japanese, we don't make cars, it's motor industry. Um, and it's seen as, as coming from industry and its application in healthcare. And, and, and I don't, and, and friends of mine who I, I had worked with who were, uh, who were colleagues from DOR would say to me, oh, no, we don't want any of that. They would literally say to me, we don't want any of that stuff. And we literally were like nearly standing on street corners saying to people who work with us. Um, and because, um, People really didn't want to engage. And then I, I, we found a, the, the, uh, a number of teams, there's about 60 people who wanted to get engaged and involved in training, like if you want to call it prototype training um, be, um, just before the university. Uh, and we worked with that with the campus development team. And there was one particular consultant who wanted to work on uh, improving door to needle times for stroke patients to, to, to really save lives. Um, so he worked with us. So I suppose the lesson I learned there was, and we had huge results. So that went from um, 80 minutes from door to needle time and um, 44 or 46 minutes from door to scan then to 44 minutes from door to needle and then to 16 minutes from door to scan, which basically meant we were saving lives and stopping patients being paralyzed. Uh, that took, that was 200 um, uh, stakeholders, 800 stakeholder engagements and 18 months. Mm. And, and a team of us working on that. But after that, other um, teams start going, God, that's really amazing. We'll have a bit of that. How did you do that? So what I always say to people is 
personally I said don't be discouraged somebody out there wants to change just find the other person who wants to connect and then work with them and then if you have a success other people will start noticing and going I'll have a bit of that and actually my colleagues Aileen and Michelle and uh, Vanessa Maria who I know you've met in Dublin in, in the yeah. Academy, will say to you when we started this about whatever remember nine or ten years ago um we we literally were trying to to sell our wares, want for a better word, come and work with us. Now it's like to get it in that hospital, in the matter hospital, you you have to actually nearly book a slot and there's a long waiting list. So we just kept going and worked with whoever would work with us. Um, and for me that, but then that incrementally started to make the change. And I think uh, the culture piece comes from me of, and I'm saying this as a nurse myself, traditionally doctors are trained, nurses are trained or educated and they do it in silos. And I suppose we always aim from day one, even when we started, if I'm honest, and our, our director of nursing or our CEO at the time will tell you, there was a push to train doctors and train nurses in Lean or in Six Sigma. And I just kept saying, no, it has to be interdisciplinary. It has to be. And I really, I, that was my battle at that stage at the beginning to be able to sort of say, no, it has to be everybody. Um, and that includes, um, we've had medical secretaries, painters, electricians, the entire hospital have to be involved in the improvement because it's not for it's it, it can't be elitist and I don't mean that in a bad way it can't be clinician you know and uh, I think that's where the culture change came because people were going oh I can do that so it's it's equitable it's fair um and it it, it I would say it was an organic growth um so when I'm working with them um, hospitals or organizations that say oh nobody's really interested i always say well nobody was interested when i started uh, and we were literally dragging people to come and work with us i said so like just work with a few people and start small i do think there's a i do think there's a bit of a a requirement sometimes for from management maybe for a wham bam it's going to happen now solution that is not sustainable if you don't have that hearts and minds piece uh, and that's, that's just my own experience. I think it's really winning people over and just working with those people. Yeah. And so, you know, I hear you touching on um, different aspects of improvement where you know, we've already sung the praises of small improvements and engaging people in that. But then some of the things that you mentioned, let's say improving stroke care, that sounds like a, a bigger multidisciplinary initiative that that does take time and engagement and coordination. Like it, it sounds like these are, um, you know, if you will, you know, value stream issues, that this is not coming into the operating room and telling anybody how to individually do their work. This is stepping back and, and also looking at bigger systems issues. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. And it's, and it's realizing, um, and I think it, that's where, um, the, the really nice piece of, 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 um, scoping. I think one of the best lessons I learned very early on from my early engagement with lean was from like project charters was it's more important to say what you're not doing than what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So you're not putting these unrealistic expectations on staff to, to deliver something that's really not smart. Um, and I, I've, I've always, I've always said to people, it's, I know what you're doing. It's what you're not doing. You need to make visible, mm. uh, because otherwise I always remember, um, looking at this, um, there was healthcare assistant grade who assists nurses. Um, and there was across 26 units in a hospital. And when we actually did observational studies, we could see, this is a true story to clean a bedside locker beside a patient's bed in the hospital the pantry staff or the catering staff would clean the tray part of it. The uh, healthcare assistants would clean the top of the locker and the cleaner would clean the body of the locker. So three people to clean a, a locker. Right. Um, and this was just right. mind-boggling. There, there's your silos. Yeah, I, I, I just couldn't believe it because I, I suppose coming from a theater background, I was like, oh, I, oh I, we wouldn't have seen that type of thing. So I was like, oh my God. So um, when the cleaning contract was coming up for renewal, there was a query, and I think it was a really good query. Could we um, take some of those duties off the the nurses' aides and get, get put it all into the cleaning contract? Have one person doing it uh, because it's up for tender. Get a really uh, good cost. Get it into the tender, 
And then we'd free up time. And when we looked at the, we did observational studies, we, we found that 40% of their time across 26 units was spent cleaning, uh, that stuff that the cleaners could clean. So, um, but th this is, I, I digress a bit, but uh, you know me, Mark, I tend to waffle on being very Irish. They say the Irish are full of locatiousness and wit. So I don't know about the wit, but very locatious. Um, <laughs> but um, in the scope part, um, the charter was really useful for me because when we went to present this, I had um, done work with my colleague Aileen on two medical wards and two surgical wards, and we had done gambas and collected loads of data. And then somebody from finance said, but you said you were looking at all 26 units. And I went, no, I didn't. And I said, we had sent you the charter, pushed it back across the table, in scope, two medical, two surgical, out of scope, all of the units. Mm -hmm. So that was really supportive of me. The expectation was that we were going to, and even those four units took about three months to cover four units. So um, I, that was a really good lesson for me where really thinking about saying what you're not doing and getting that recorded somewhere. Not that you're lazy, but that you're, you're trying to level the load, you know, and be realistic, I suppose. So um, that's, that, that was a really good lesson for me in Maine, I think. Yeah, no, I, I don't think that's being lazy at all. It's um, keeping, uh, keeping things realistic. We have yeah. to start somewhere. Um, I've, I've seen, a lot, yeah, a lot of initiatives that, uh, around you know, lean management system practices that went too broad too quickly and, um, if, if you will, it collapsed under its own ambition. You know, um, it, you know things went, went more broadly than um, there were coaches available to support people in things like daily huddles or, or problem solving. When I think you tr when you go too broad too quickly, there's a risk that, that people struggle and people can, are, are generally uncomfortable with that struggle. And then if they don't have a coach providing moral support and, and, you know, then, and then there's the risk is that people give up and they say, oh, we tried lean and it didn't work here. Like, to me, that's the worst thing that could ever happen. And I think we have to guard against that. I agree with you. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I completely agree. And I think that's even from the, um, we've just had this conversation recently, as I was saying, we've more students. So we were sitting down looking at this with the team in the matter because it's a joint program with the hospital and myself and my colleague Aileen, who's the manager there, were saying, we don't, it's great to have lots of students, but we don't want to have quantity and not be able to deliver quality mm -hmm. um, outputs from the program. Um, so we really looked at um, a mentoring program of we've we've other black belts within the hospital and within the system that we're saying right we, we really need to make sure everybody gets a, a an equal share or gets the same attention not that mark's team he spends so much time with them and sean paul just gives them a cursory attention so we really need to make sure everybody gets a good mentor a good uh, a good uh, sensei and supports them uh, and that's really funny because we only had that conversation last week but it's great having more students but we don't want to not give them the same level of support. So that is an issue. I agree with you. Yeah. yeah. And and back to what you said earlier, when when you're you're no longer having to push this on people, it sounds like there has been a lot of interest in poll generated managing that demand. Yes. Or the yeah. courses um, can, could be challenging because I'm sure you don't want to say no to anybody. But again, it's like you said, it's not being lazy. It's not no. It's not yet or not right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think part of the thing was we did, we capped our numbers and then we rose our numbers and now we, then we capped them finally. Uh, but I think the thing is you could have lots of students this year um, who have a bad experience and then a word of mouth, mm -hmm. it says, don't come back, don't go there. As you said, um, we've tried that and it didn't work. Or you can just have a number of students who are well supported, who deliver successful projects, who are empowered, I suppose, and become really good lean practitioners. Uh, and then you'll, you'll definitely have students next year. Whereas if you're just crowding them in um, and it's not a quality experience, I mean, go back to the voice of the customer. Um, I, you know, if I have a bad experience with the service provider, I just, I'm, not, I'm just not using them anymore. And, and at the end of the day, and I, I sometimes think, Certainly, um, I, I'm not sure internationally, it's probably different, but it's certainly in Ireland, sometimes when I say to people in class, you know, at the end of the day, we are a service industry. Some people don't like to think of healthcare being a service industry, but actually, you know, I say, but at the end, of the day, we are a service industry and we have to deliver a service. So, and, but the universities are no different. We have to deliver a service uh, to our students who are our primary customers. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always cognizant of that. So uh, I think that's really important. Yeah. 
And and so, you know, since we are having an international conversation with what's usually an international audience, I was wondering if we could take a step back a little bit for people who are not familiar with the Irish healthcare system nationally. You know, people may be familiar with um, the England National Health Service model. Um, how would you compare and contrast um, differences in, in sort of, you know, the high level structure of the Irish system and as, you know, as a follow-up, do, does that lead to any differences to um, how lean is um, positioned or uh, put into practice? Yeah, well, I think, well, I'm fortunate. I trained in the NHS as a nurse, and I know a lot of um, uh, people in the in the UK uh, would, would complain about the NHS, but actually I thought it was a fantastic um, system to train in and work in. Now, that was in the 80s. I know it's changed, but the NHS has been constant. Now, I know it's evolved into trusts and things like that. Uh, in Ireland, really, um, we've had a number of iterations. We had what we called health boards, and we had the Eastern Regional Health Authority. And then about 2005, they came up with what's called the Health Service Executive, which is, for want of a better word, the um, the Irish um, NHS, but it's not it's not like the NHS. Mm-hmm. And basically what we have is we do have a two tier um, healthcare system, very similar. We have private, public, private. Um, and I think if it's if you earn under about 200 euro per week, you get what we call a medical card, which will pay for your medication, which will pay for en- basically everything. So we have quite a good system for that. And we weigh, we pay a universal social charge, which can be from anywhere from, I think, 2% up to 7% uh, in our salaries, which would, would pay for that. So we, we pay, uh, in my opinion, uh, we pay... Um, we pay probably Scandinavian level tax, but not for Scandinavian level of uh, service efficiency, if I'm honest. Um, so we have we have um, all the bottleneck issues. We have patients and trolleys. We have, uh, and I think what has happened in Ireland is um, that there was always a focus on acute care. So when I was um, working in Ireland in 2001, our, our minister for the, at the time, Brendan Helen, introduced this policy called um, Quality and Fairness, a health system for you, which was going to introduce community um, community structures, like really good public health centres, like more public health nurses. Um, and all, that was in 2001. So now we are in 2020. Um, we have now a new initiative called Sloan Care, which is going to deliver that in 20, so 19 years later. Now, when I trained as a student in London in the 80s, we had public health nurses, we had district nurses, we had community midwives. In Ireland, you'd have a public health nurse doing all three functions. Uh, and we had uh, really good public health, um, community public health systems. Um, so the problem we have with the Irish healthcare system is no matter how efficient the hospitals are from door to door, there isn't um, the, the just the structures and the systems really aren't there in the community uh, to support the discharge. So a lot of the blocks to flow uh, within the organizations are getting people home. Um, mm-hmm. 70% of our patients go home, but the 30% who go to long-term care or rehabilitation or respite care or some other destination are obviously the people who spend a long time in hospital. And then we have all the delays. So um, I would say we've had a, we've had a, a lot of change. Uh, interestingly, um, um, COVID has made things flow very fast. I mean, unfortunately, everything could be done. There was money appearing from nowhere. Everybody's remarking on this. It's just in me, all my colleagues who work in healthcare. Um, and now that we're in post-COVID, and I say that with crossed fingers, um, things are reverting back to normal. So I suppose that's that's where the now yeah, there's a lot of good in the Irish healthcare. We have, um, you know, we've uh, children under six re- re- receive free care. There's a lot of good stuff. But one thing we don't have is we don't have a lot of general practitioners or GPs who who work very very hard. We um, we uh, have don't have a lot of consultants and we certainly don't have a lot of nurses and we don't also don't have a lot of beds in the system which were taken out in the 80s and never put back in so my analogy which is probably terrible for the irish healthcare system but i i've, I've heard it somewhere years ago and i've used it since is that the irish healthcare system is like i think we talked about this before it's like a big cake mm-hmm. so i've i've got a huge big cake i've been given this cake and uh, it's a lovely cake. It's domed. It's glazed. It's full of a candy peel and sugar and currants and raisins and sultanas. All those nice things. Um, I didn't shop for it and I didn't bake it. Uh, and I actually hate currants, sultanas, and raisins. So <laughs> I 
most of us are working in a health service that is like that cake. Uh, we can chop the top off the cake and cover it in frosting and call it a carrot cake. But guess what? It's still full of all those things we don't like. So I think a lot of us are in that situation. And I, I think that's probably the same internationally probably a lot of people are working in a system that they're they're redesigning because they never designed it in the first place ah, right so, um, yes. I, I think i think i think what you said there is really important because um i think um most irish people uh, who can access public care have have private health care insurance anyway as a, as a stopgap to to jump the queue i suppose yeah. um really that that i think um but contextually that's I think Ireland is different to the NHS in that regard. It's very it's very Irish model. Yeah, and um, are the the hospitals and healthcare facilities um, government owned and run, or is there a mix of of government run and private? So we have we have what we call the HSC hospitals, who are health service executive hospitals. Uh, we have voluntary hospitals then. Um, which would have been hospitals that like were under uh, would have been um, under orders of nuns like the matter I worked like the Mercy Sisters the Mercy nuns and then there would be private hospitals and again there's been a boom in private healthcare in in Ireland I mean there's I work with about five private hospitals at the moment as well as the public hospitals with myself and my colleagues um, and they are very very big adapters of lean certainly they are very big adapters of lean that they've been. Um, the public definitely, but the, in the last, I'd say, three years, I've seen the private hospitals just seem to just run with it. Definitely, yeah. yeah. So it's a mix. I think it's probably the same as the UK in that regard. Okay. Well, yeah. Thank you for sharing um, some of some of that, um, you know, kind of uh, context. Because I'm going to paraphrase, you know, Dr. John Toussaint, who always says half jokingly, "If you've seen one lean transformation, you've seen one lean transformation." And um, you know, for my American audience, um, you know, uh, when, when, when we think of the different health systems around the world, whether it's to the north of us in Canada or England or the Netherlands or Ireland, if, if you've seen one country's health system, you've seen one country's health system, that they're not all the same. Absolutely, yeah, context. But in fact, even, even, even departments, the contexts are different. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, I think I always remember this when we when we, when we were doing that work with the the nurses aides or the, the healthcare assistants, and there were twenty six units, and um, all of the units had the same job description for this grade of staff. But when we actually went and asked the managers what they were doing, twenty six different. <laughs> nobody was doing anything the same way in any units. So it was very interesting. And and so that story in that scenario is fairly universal, uh, you know, across countries. So I think that that's in my travels, it's interesting to see the high level health system can be very different. The structure of who pays, who employs the medical staff, who owns the buildings. But now when you get into the details of how care is provided, where is the waste? Where are the problems with flow or, or quality? Um, much of that tends to be fairly universal because to, to use your cake analogy, um, we eat cake here uh, as well. And, and like you said, um, you know, why, why has the cake always been that way? Yeah, yeah. Nobody true. remembers who came up with the recipe, right? Very good. I like that, Jim. Yeah, it's very good. Very true. Um, so I, I am curious, you know, before we talk about uh, more about the lean education and get back into that, you know, I, 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 I am curious if I can get your thoughts on, you know, some of the public discourse about healthcare in Ireland, because I, I think one thing is fairly universal, it, you know, while um, the United States is notorious for having the most expensive healthcare in the world, as is generally measured, um, in, in many countries, uh, people aren't happy with the current expenditures around healthcare. So I'm, I'm curious, the question is, yeah, you know, how much do you see in in the press, or even in uh, political discussion around cost pressure pressures related to healthcare, and how much do you see discussion around uh, access, patient safety, or quality of care? In a lot of countries, it seems like the cost discussion really dominates. But how how is it in Ireland? 
I think, well, I think Irish people are very vocal. We, we're not afraid to say what we, um, as you can see, <laughs> we're not afraid to say what we think. So um, there isn't a day that goes by, I suppose, in Ireland where health isn't in, in, in the press, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's in the media, um, on, on the TV or news streams or Twitter or whatever, or, or in, in print press. Um, so, uh, and I, some people call the, the Minister for Health, the, the, the portfolio in Ireland, it is sometimes known as the poison chalice, more so than any other. Any other. Because um, it is such a, a, a huge ministry, um, and it, it 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 is it is actually known in Ireland as the poison chalice. Um, so I, I think the the issues tend to be emotive issues that you see in the press. I don't think it's so much the cost. It's things like we have a, a the a nurses um, INMO runs a very good uh, trolley guard that checks to a number of patients that are waiting on trolleys in in ERs. Um, but it's usually stuff like my father spent 20 hours on a trolley. It's there's they're the sensationalist stories that the press will run with. Uh, but then we've had a lot of um, scandals in Ireland. We've had uh, cervical smear test problems where women died who were given the wrong information. They were told they were clear and they weren't and then ended up dying for it. We've had, um, I, I think for me, the in, in Ireland, um, things... I, I suppose it's a, a bit, it's not so much the pokeyoka, the, the prevention rather than the cure. Um, so years ago, uh, uh, unfortunately, a, a lovely Irish woman who I didn't know, but um, I know her story called Susie Long died of bowel cancer because she didn't get her screening on time. And that that generated uh, the National um, Bowel Cancer Screening Programme in Ireland. But it's almost as if something terrible has to happen. Mm or a reactionary something is put in place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, that that's what the press would be telling you about, all these stories of this happened and then some, something does happen and there's agitation for something to happen. And I think that um, the importance for me of lean dissemination in the country or lean thinking, it just thinking or even the, the philosophy of a way of thinking for me is that people are thinking that like pokey up the 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 you know prevention better than cure um this this didn't need to happen where where did the process fail how does this happen um and i think that's what the the press would but the press would run with those more horrendous i suppose um stories uh, because they they sell i don't mean that in a bad way but that's what you'd hear now so the cost the only big cost um issue that has been in the press recently is that the, the the National Children's Hospital in Ireland, which has been built, has now become the most expensive children's hospital in the world and it's not yet open. Uh, and that is obviously generating lots of headlines, not so much with COVID now. Um, so it's, it's, it's things like that. That's where the money is being discussed. So um, Issues like that where how, how are we going to staff it? How are we going to equip it? This is just for the build and it's already the most expensive hospital in the world. This is true. Um, so uh, I'm sure it could be the best. But um, so they t- they're the money stories about where money is wasted would be in where they build something. But for example, um, the hospital that I worked as project manager on had was building a children's hospital on site. Um, with us, we were going to have a combined children and adults hospital on site. Um, and then it went, it was coming there, then it wasn't, then there was planning permission issues. And eventually they pulled it and moved it to another site. Um, but um, there was, I won't quantify it, but there was millions of euro, and it, it is in the press in Ireland, um, of planning went down the drain. So like, you know, they're the things that get the headlines, I suppose. So the, the cost would be in relation to wasted money in relation to that could have been spent on something else. But the most of the headlines are the more emotive things about personal stories and horrible experiences, really, you know. Sure, sure. And I, I think one, one thing that's a struggle in American press coverage of healthcare is when there is some catastrophic patient safety failure, people often don't connect the dots to these being common and systemic problems, right? So we play the blame game of who messed up and, and people think these are isolated incidents yeah. as opposed to being um, far too, far, you know, happening way uh, too often and, um, you know, uh, not, not isolated. So that's, that's a challenge um, that, that sounds familiar. 
Yeah, I think uh, for for me with the I always throw up just the very quickly a pie chart, which you know the damning the ninety four six on the screen, and I always say to people now, where is the process failing? If six percent of it's down to human, and then ninety four percent gives us lots of margin to find out what's going wrong, where the failure points are, and I I, I really see that with with uh, with people in the oh actually that they nearly feel okay that's good because. You know, it, 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 it's it's not the blame culture, but the traditional approach, I suppose, and we, we are myself from working clinically, patient delay coming to the OR, oh, the unit didn't send them down in time, or the porter didn't do this, and we we always we always blame somebody, uh, and I personally I have found in as I've as I've worked with Lean over the years that I do think it it, it nearly neutralizes that blame culture because if people are thinking where's the process failing, they don't point the finger. And that that for me is just amazing that you know people are actually not blaming and personalizing failure of a system to individuals, which is terrible really you know so i I've seen that shift in culture where uh, people have moved away from that way of thinking to a far more uh, system focused you know the system is failing, not the person in it yeah. you know that's that's great and that that's again I think something that's fairly universal human behavior and universal organizational behavior that, that, that we can learn from or draw inspiration from or um, talk about across borders. Um, but I, I wanted to ask, um, I wanted to hear more about the Modern Lean Academy. And, okay. you know, you've already touched on some elements of it that sound great. The interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary teaching, easier said some days than others, interdisciplinary <laughs> teaching um, to break down silos. But can you tell, tell, tell the audience um, more about the academy, maybe even a little, you know, I don't know how much you want to get into the history of it, but how did it come to be? Who helps sponsor it? Who, who is involved? And, and what's the approach that you take? So basically, um, we had had um, the campus development had been working on my boss, Laura, had we'd all worked together on getting this initial um, uh, lean program um, up and running. And we worked with uh, a lean trainer who was external. Um, and we'd about, um, I think, 60 people went through the program. And it, it was, um, it was uh, if I'm honest, it was, it was good, but it was a bit ad hoc, as in people came when they could. And it wasn't, uh, you know, they just came and did a bit of training, but they mightn't turn up every day. So they might miss, say, um, sessions on Kanban or 5S, but, but they pick up something. So it just, it, it was a bit ad hoc. So, um, at that stage, I had done my green belt and our CEO was saying, you know, we want to do this, but we need to cost save. So um, I actually went to her and said to her, I was working in quality at the time because I had finished with the build and I had moved back to my finished my secondment and I was working in quality. Uh, and I said to the CEO, I said, train me to be a black belt. I said, I, I, we can do this. I said, and we can build our own capacity. I said, but you need to, you need to invest in me. Uh, and it was expensive. And she said to me, mm, she said, okay, what, well, basically what's in it for me? And I went through, I said, well, we can, we can build up our own capacity. Uh, I'll be able to be a full-time black belt, be able to train people, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, this worked really, really well. Um, and um, she supported me on that. I went off to my black belt training. We started talking about getting more greens trained. And then um, we, because we were partnered with the university, University College Dublin, um, we start talking about working with the university and actually getting academic accreditation. So I suppose the reason I say that is because when I did my um, OR um, certification in anaesthetics and um, um, scrub, um, the year I was going to do it, um, it was a certificate. But the year after, um, if I waited a year, I'd get I'd actually get a, a, a university diploma with with credits. And I knew that um, I waited a year because I wanted to get a university qualification. So I said, look, really, you know, if people are doing this work, all this work, they really should get something for it. Now, they'll get, they should actually get something they can use credit for education. So everybody agreed. And then uh, Mark McMara was the dean of uh, nursing and the head of school at the time. Uh, was um, he agreed with us? Uh, my colleague Mary in the university as well. So we, basically, we, we all came together and said we can do this. So we put together the programs and we, we developed a, um, a joint appointment 
with the university who would be a black belt who would work between the hospital and university. Uh, I was the lean manager at the time of the academy. And then from there, we started just doing um, training. We kept it in-house first, only trained our hospital. Then it moved to there's 11 hospitals in our hospital group with 10,000 staff. So we started taking people from there. And then suddenly um, other hospitals start saying, oh, we'd like to do what you're doing. Will you take us for training? So we said yes. So then suddenly this demand built up and became an issue. So we we have two strands. We have the um, team in the uh, Lean Academy work with me uh, in the university. So I moved on and actually, uh, I actually moved into that post when that other black man left. So I moved to university. So um, I work between the university and the hospital. So in the university, I would lecture and teach and, and work. And then in the hospital, I would work with practice groups of lean, qualified lean people and w- would work with my team there, or not my team, the, our, the, our team there um, on rapid improvement, on uh, value stream analysis, on projects locally <clears throat> but likewise the team in the hospital will then um, mentor students um, from the university so we have a really nice um, it works really nice so they get to keep up their I suppose their theory component and work practically with lean and I get to keep up my theory component and actually work on the ground with lean as well so it, it works really really well um, and that's where we are at the moment um, and to be honest with you this year as I was saying to you earlier Mark uh, we thought with COVID that we didn't even know if our programs would run, but there just seems to be this huge interest in people wanting to make improvement now they've seen things can happen. Um, so it, it's, it's a very nice, it's a very, um, I would say it's very um, symbiotic relationship between the, the, the Matra Hospital and the University. We just work really well together. I think because I used to work in that role in the hospital before I moved to university, there's just, we've just a lovely team in the hospital uh, and I work with some fantastic people in the university as well so it's just it's just really it's really um it works for everybody I think you know and it's we're, we're I have to say I, I I genuinely have to say that um I actually love going into work because I love the people I work with they're just such a nice team so I'm very lucky and, and I think that's part of the success story is the team really yeah yeah, yeah. well I, you know I really did enjoy the opportunity to come and visit last year. I, I joked about inviting myself. It's, a, it's a, you know, that, that, that's not completely true, but, you know, there had been previous invitations, which I appreciated, and the opportunity to give a remote lecture um, for, for the class. And then um, last fall, I was already in Europe as it was. I was in the Netherlands. I was in Switzerland. And I thought, oh, well, it's a short hop to Dublin. And I'd never been to Ireland. So um, it was a great opportunity um, to you know, help teach in person, but then to go walk the Gemba in the hospitals and, and to meet the people in the program. And, and thank you again uh, for that no, opportunity. Sean Paul. You were fantastic. It was great having you. Yeah, we had a, we had a great time. Yeah, really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, your workshop was fantastic. So uh, uh, I was very energized. We all enjoyed that. Yeah. I, I look forward to a day when uh, that sort of travel becomes um, possible yeah. again so that we can, you know, because the learning goes in, in all directions and the inspiration um, goes goes in all directions. So um, that was just it's nice reminiscing about that for a minute. But it is, yeah. <laughs> but back to the brutal realities of of 2020 um, and and the impact on on COVID. There's um, I know elements of, of of your personal story this year from a professional standpoint and a personal standpoint. Maybe first off, if you don't mind, professionally that yeah. you were back into clinical care. Um, could, could you talk a little bit more about that experience and how, how is that different now that you have this lean lens, if you will, realizing that it was probably really difficult in a yeah. d- difficult environment with everything going on? But. Yeah. Well, I suppose, first of all, um, I think uh, for me, so what happened was when, when COVID obviously struck, um, like graduations and things weren't happening at university level. And I work because I work a a, um, a split between the university um, and the hospital. I would be a joint appointment. I'd spend time in each. So what I did was I still had students that I had to close out because they were coming up to, they, 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 they were submitting assignments and stuff like that. Uh, so I upped, my, I upped my days in the hospital. But um, initially we were um, doing algorithms and process mapping, stuff like that, and running data. Um, 
uh, and then my colleague Maria, who I was fantastic. You, you met Maria Mark. She's a, she's a black belt, and she's yeah. just a, the nicest and most wonderful person. But actually, just such a sharp brain, a fantastic. She comes. She's a black belt with a pharmacy background. Just the most wonderful woman. Um, Maria um, and myself were then we we wanted to do something not just sitting in the back room running data because we were both used to being up front not that that's not important um and i was i was saying i was like getting emotional and saying i'm just going to put on scrubs i just need to go and do something because <laughs> everybody wanted to do something for we were calling it nearly the national effort we all wanted to do something meaningful um because everybody was scared let's be honest so um so what we did was um one of the consultants, Tara McGinty, had in the infectious diseases had talked about another clinic, which was just in trial period where patients with respiratory illness were sent home on monitoring if they were if they were well enough to work and uh, if it was well enough to work. So we we worked with the hospital uh, and with a company who ran those monitors and we looked at a situation where we were trying to basically stop the hospital becoming overwhelmed. So what happened was we designed a COVID clinic and the idea from scratch, we literally put this together overnight. Uh, so what happened was that patients who would come in um, who were COVID and had, had symptoms were being admitted. Uh, so we, we very quickly realized that we couldn't take every patient in who had COVID. Uh, so the, the consultant said, well, look, some patients have symptoms, but they're well enough to be at home. So what we'll do is we will monitor them. So we need uh, a team of people who can monitor them remotely. So we need nurses, we need um, people who can um, ring people um because in, in the matter hospital we did our own in-house testing so who can ring people and give them the results who are used to breaking bad news who can give them the good news that they don't have it and who could advise them then on what to do you know what will i do with my family if and then so we, we set out an algorithm and we started off with that and it was all very straightforward and then suddenly we realized this wasn't going to work we had to be agile because on our team we had people who um, it's department. So we had medical social work. We had two audiologists, Nina and Rula on the team. Fantastic. Um, just the most fantastic team. And we came from people I had never worked with or former students, but people I had never worked with because there's 3000 staff in that hospital. Right. It just became this really tight knit team in, in, within days. Um, and as we were working, people were saying, um, oh, what about homeless people? We've no pathway for that. So quickly, we have to design the pathway for homeless people. We need to talk to the. We need to talk to the community. What what happens with homeless people? How are they looked? People who were living in a house, um, um, migrant uh, workers who could have twenty living in a house. What do we do? Where do we isolate them? Then there's hotels they can go to. What's the pathway for that? What about um, we? We just came up with all of these various pathways. Then we found out people who we had sent home, who we'd sent home, who got ill, were coming in and going through the clean stream, for want of a better word. It's not clean stream, but they, they, we already knew they had COVID. They should go another way. So we started off with this pathway, which developed into about twenty different pathways. So literally, uh, we were joking nearly that every day it was like a hydra. Every time we sorted the problem, another problem. We literally were inventing pathways. Mm -hmm. And that meant huge stakeholder engagement, as in talking to the community, talking to district nurses, talking to um, reporting results, talking to the Department of Health. And literally, uh, now I have to, I cannot take credit because Maria was there all the time. And uh, Maria, Michelle, Vanessa, just a fantastic team. And then all of the guys, I can't name Jeremy and Suzanne and everybody, Rula, everybody, I could name them, I can't name them all, but this fantastic team in the clinic. Um, so basically, we got it off. I would say we got it off to a fine art, especially with our occupational health team, Dominic Nathan. Thing we had it off to a fine art where it was running like clockwork. Patient presents. We knew exactly where to send them, and we had all the resources, even to a point where we could somebody could ring me, and we could actually have the ambulance collect them to bring them to where they needed to go, so they bypassed the ER. It was it was so fine tuned. Uh, and then we had about 500 patients on monitoring him at one stage. So once it was set up, then um, I started to drift, not drift, but I started to adopt my more clinical role of the nurse. So uh, patients who had been diagnosed, who were ill and who were at home, a lot of them would deteriorate and would have to come back into the hospital. So you needed clinicians working on that. So myself and my colleague, Suzanne, Jeremy, uh, Nelly, a couple of the others, we predominantly did the clinical piece and then the guys did the the more the pathway piece and the organizing everything else so mm -hmm. uh, or, and they would ring people and tell them i'm sorry to tell you that and you know ringing somebody to tell them at the time everybody was so afraid of covid you might tell just ring and give them the result you could be on the phone for two hours counseling person so you know it really was 
everything, counseling, clinical, everything like that. So it, it ran really well, really efficiently. We used to courier monitors out to people's houses. We'd send them home, don't worry, the monitor would be there the next day. We had a whole protocol for how they would deliver them without being in contact with leaving the people. It was it was like, so basically I'd say we were very agile because we we literally were adapting as it happened. Mm-hmm. So um, we weren't we weren't actually with patients um, uh, physically. We kept the clinic separate so that it would be, we could all work together in a big cohort of people, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's great hearing about that agility because, especially in uncertain times, it would be unfair to somebody to, to expect that somebody comes up with a perfect plan. Yes, that you yes. discover new needs and new circumstances, and being um, whether whatever word you want to use, agile, nimble, flexible, adaptable. Yeah, that's that's all critically important. I have to say, uh, just on a personal note, I found the the thing I found most difficult was. Um, I tended to do the uh, longer shift, the late shifts, say from one until nine in the evening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hadn't done evening shifts in years because I hadn't been clinical in years. Nice. So it wasn't so much the, um, it wasn't so much doing the shifts was fine, but coming home in the evening, walking through our city centre, that was completely deserted. It was really, there was nobody there. there was, it was literally like, a ghost town yeah. uh, and I found that very very um weird I just found it it was like it was like an apocalyptic movie just because I, I oh you could only be out at that stage of lockdown you could only be out if you were if you had to you'd meet a policeman and you'd have to show your hospital ID you know um I found that very very derealizing I think it was like something out of a really bad movie you know so <laughs> the work was great then you'd be all buzzed and then you'd go out and you go oh god this is terrible you know sounds weird but that was what mentally I thought that was quite quite affecting you know yeah so um again just coming back to the 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 question around you know so being back in frontline care after learning lean practicing lean teaching lean um how 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 was is it how would you compare to years previous when uh, you were working the operating room. I know there were a lot of differences, but did you have opportunities to speak up and, and participate in yeah. some of that improvement? We work? did, yeah, basically. So basically the clinic, we were given the clinic and we designed it. So Maria and myself designed it with my colleague Michelle, um, the three black belts. Um, and then we were really fortunate in that most of the people who were in the clinic with us, working with us, we had lots of green belts. Or we had people who had done the white belt, the introduction to lean. So nobody was unfamiliar. And I think this is where the hospital has over a thousand people um, who have done at least the introduction to lean. So it and it's well known. The great thing about the hospital is as well, it's been there so long that most people know what it is. So it, it, you weren't you weren't you were pushing an open door saying we should do this we should do that and then again it was very i suppose to use the person centered um to from edinburgh from brendan and janet it was very collaborative and inclusive so we would sit down and have a huddle at two o'clock and say okay this didn't work this morning Mm. any ideas and anything went anybody so it wasn't just we were designing the processes but we were everybody was feeding into it so you know it was very collaborative very inclusive and very participatory everybody was participating um so it was very much there was no nobody was the boss and i think a really nice thing maria did was we had to do a roster and traditionally when i was a nurse manager i would do a roster and say mark you're working monday tuesday wednesday sean paul you're working thursday friday saturday and you're working these shifts um Maria made the conscious decision to leave the shift on the shared drive and you could just put in what you could work. Oh, okay. Nobody was told, but we all just decided we just, and then we would just send, we had a a, a group app, like, and we just say on our phones, guys, we've three shifts. We've nobody to cover. And then you'd have a look. So actually there was never a shift that wasn't covered Wow. from coming from a clinical background. I have never seen that because people were always just told these are your shifts. We need you to work these, but that clinic was never not covered. And there was never, uh, there was never a roster. We just, the rosters there put in what you can work. And that's what we did, which I think was amazing. Yeah. So from uh, command and control scheduling to more collaborative schedule. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which I've never seen. I'll be honest with you. I've never seen because if I was the, a manager again, I'd be going, no, I just need to cover those shifts. I, I would, I would, I, I would find it hard not to revert, yeah. but in fairness, I give Maria all the credit. So I'm just putting it up there. I'm not anybody's boss, which was, mm-hmm. but that's, that's a measure of the person she is. So, you yeah. know, 
So you have this interesting mix of roles as somebody who helped create the clinic, somebody who is working in the clinic, and then kind of going back to um, the personal side again, you, you were also a patient. Yes. If you don't mind sharing a little yeah. bit about that experience of being a COVID-19 patient. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I suppose um, you, you, and just to say everybody was doing everything right, washing our hands, isolating in that clinic. We all worked in separate rooms because it was, it was, it was, it was actually an outpatient clinic. So we had like about 15 rooms. So none of us were really together. Um, we all worked together, but we'd have huddles, safe huddles and everything was fine. But then one of our, one of our uh, colleagues, um, unfortunately caught COVID um, she was an infectious disease nurse. And then we got the phone call that you need to self-isolate. And I was thinking, well, actually, I wasn't near her really. And then I think there was five of us who were on the shift that she had been on. I think of the five of us, four of us ended up getting COVID. So, um, and to be honest with you, my father-in-law had just, my, my husband's father had just passed away from COVID that week. So it was really pretty bad time. And there was, I think there was 10 of us at the funeral because you just couldn't have people at the funeral. Right. Um, so um, I sort of felt okay because, um, you know, I sing, I degree in music as well. So I sing and I sang at the funeral, which was really lovely and everything. And then I just thought I had a bit of a headache after that. I think I thought it was all the singing. Uh, so anyway, um, I just really didn't feel well at the weekend. And I was starting to go down through the list. I had all the symptoms. So for when I was diagnosed, then I, I was sort of, in a way, it sounds really weird because I worked in the hospital, I could look up my own results. But when I saw my results, I actually burst into tears because I was just so upset that I had caught it because I couldn't understand how I got it, to be honest with you. Well, and, 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 and to be clear, I wasn't blaming you for getting it or I wasn't blaming anybody you work with. No, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's just, no, of course not. No, I think, uh, no, but I'm just saying we were all so careful, but you just don't know where, you know, you're traveling on public transport. We were all walking into, the, we were all living, I suppose. It's just, it's out there. Um, no, it was no, it's not at all. We, and none of us know where we caught it, to be honest with you. Uh, so um, what happened then was um, first couple of days, I was, um, what do you call it? I was okay but then by about the third day I just really was really ill I had really high pyrexis very high temperatures dreadful cough I'm asthmatic I was just short of breath and uh, not sleeping these sweats it was just I had everything that was going and then nosebleeds which apparently I don't know not very many people I had really bad nosebleeds so I was quite ill uh, my husband's a nurse as you know Mark so he was able to nurse me at home but then the clinic uh, were happy to monitor me at home because my hubby's a nurse but um, and I, I, I know this sounds really weird because you think you're a nurse yourself but um, when you have somebody ringing you saying, oh, your monitor's here, do another reading. Uh, and this would, I'm thinking of one of the nurses in particular, Olive, who's a nurse I had worked with for years, was monitoring me and saying, now I know you think you know this, but I'm just going to contact the doctor and we're just going to check you out. So the level of comfort that gives you, because you, you're even, people say, oh, you, you can nurse yourself, but actually you sort of can't in a way, you just need somebody to that comfort. So, um, so I actually ended up becoming a patient of the clinic, uh, which was, fantastic in a way because um i felt so minded and so cared for uh, and they kept me on monitoring for about uh, it's two weeks usually but they kept because i was ill they kept me on monitoring for three weeks constantly and then after that they checked in with me uh, and then they did like a, a not an accident for then i went into the hospital and i was checked out and it was the leanest thing i've ever been at in the hospital oh. i went in walked in the door uh, again designed by my colleague um, Heather who's a uh, lean green belt but she's one of the managers in the area she's fantastic and Heather and the infectious disease team so I walked in the door to the clinic they said to me go straight to x-ray went straight to x-ray walked in had my x-ray and was out in about literally five minutes back down have your bloods everything was just everything happened I was I was literally in and out in 30 minutes everything done with social distancing and everything. It was such a lean operation. It was fantastic. Again, um, designed by my, I can't take any credit for that for my guess. So my experience, and I actually then emailed Heather and copied the CEO of the hospital and the, and the deputy CEO going, this was just a fantastic experience as a patient to go to that clinic. So, uh, yeah, so I was, I, I was, um, yeah, it was, it was, I was very uh, fortunate to be looked after by a fantastic group of people that I had actually had the pri pri privilege to work with as well. Uh, and then I um, came back, but I was gone for about seven weeks. So by the time I came back, fortunately, things were starting to decrease. So the clinic was um, um, disbanded or not disbanded, but it only had about 10 patients. It had gone from 500 to 10. So it is ready. Uh, the, the formula, all of the pathways are there. The great thing is, I don't mean the great thing, but it sounds terrible. Um, if, it, if it happens again, 
if there is another, I won't say outbreak, if there is another, uh, I'll say outbreak rather than um, second wave because they're saying they're saying that covid like a fire a forest fire you, you can damp it down but it's not going out right. so um to say if there's another outbreak it's ready to roll that that's all we've we've learned and it probably will be agile and adapt again so uh, you know it was a it was a it was pretty weird though to be a patient of the clinic that you have designed so um, <laughs> i'm yeah. glad we did a good job <laughs> yeah well I'm, I'm i'm glad you're you're feeling better you're back to work and um, yeah, yeah. the work you've done um, has, has, you know, of course, benefited uh, a lot of patients, a lot of people. And um, like you said, hopefully there won't be a great need for that again okay. moving forward. But I think, you know, um, I want to thank you and, and applaud you for the work you've done to equip others to improve and redesign care, or as you said earlier, to design it finally. <laughs> Equipping people with that is uh, is going to serve everybody um, everybody really well, no matter what happens uh, in in the future. So thank you for that, Sean Paul. Thank you, Marcus. I'm only, I'm only part of a, a, a team of fantastic people, I have to say. So yeah, yeah. Um, but thank you, uh, thank you so much for sharing your experiences, both recent and looking back um, a, l- a little ways. I'm really glad. Um, that, that we were able to do the podcast together. So it's great, great being able to talk to you. Yeah, and you, always good to see you. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Oh, and I was going to mention also, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, maybe I'll ask you to speak to it briefly. Um, the, uh, the journal issue oh, yes. that um, you had invited me to um, give some input on and to contribute a piece, a collection of, um, I guess, case studies, and examples would be the words to use, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's right. So we um, uh, we worked with the uh, International Journal for Quality in Healthcare uh, last year, and we we uh, produced a supplement. And Mark very kindly um, was our, our was our um, uh, boat, functioned as both an editor and uh, also gave a very nice forward piece uh, for the journal. So I think we have six or seven um, case studies from. Uh, a, hospitals in Ireland I think most of them are the matter but there's one in um, Galway as well just about the application of lean uh, and Six Sigma projects um, with teen students we've worked with around the country um, and ranging from um, um, I suppose environment of care and flow to to um, hip fractures and uh, to stroke patient nutrition so really nice projects again all interdisciplinary so um, yeah no so there's a um, there's that's uh, available online free it's open access so yeah actually Mark that'd be good people could have a look at that and see some of the work we were doing yeah 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 well great well I hope people will go um, check that out and uh, again I want to thank our guest Sean Paul Teeling uh, for joining us it's uh, going to be evening for you there in Dublin. So I hope you have a good evening, a good night, and good rest of the week. Thanks very much, Mark, and you, and take care. Good to see you. Okay. Thank, you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.